Hello and welcome to Mission Motorsports Mini Sessions podcast coming to you from the minibar itself. Head on over to our Instagram at Mission Motor SPT to find out how you could be the lucky winner of this whole thing for just £10. Joining us today is Jane Morton. How are you? I'm all right, how are you? Yeah, good, thanks. So you've got quite um, an illustrious CV, you know, SAS, para, race car driver, mountaineer. Have you always had that adventure in you or is that something that's kind of just grown? No, I think I've always had it since I was at school. I always, um, I, I hated being indoors, always just wanted to be outdoors. Um, always with like mates and friends, just, you know, doing stupid stuff, playing in woods, building tree houses. Um, yeah, nicking off school, like all that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, and I think solely the, one of the main reasons for joining the military was that sense of adventure. And it just, you know, the whole military piece just looked like adventure. And I guess when you get in, it is because you, you're constantly being sent on courses. You're constantly, you know, in training on operations, um, going overseas to countries that you may have never been to or would have never been to if you hadn't joined the military. So, yeah, I think just trying to seek out adventure um, in its many different forms, whether it's racing, mountains, military or, or travel or anything, just, and just try and, you know, find some sort of enjoyment and fulfillment through that. And like you say, you were busy in your career. I mean, six tours of Afghan, four in Iraq, two covert deployments. Did you have much time to breathe? Were you constantly on back-to-back like, trips? Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> you don't have much time to breathe, to be fair. And it's probably one of the reasons why I left in the first place. Um, I don't know, it's like life in the Special Forces is it's fast. You know, you, you spend a lot of time away, you spend a lot of time out of your, your home and your normal bed. And, and don't get me wrong, it was the best job in the world and I wouldn't change it for anything. But you lose that element of freedom and um, leaving the military was something that, you know, I wanted that freedom back and that ability to be able to just make decisions um, based on what I wanted to do and not, you know, being told where to be on Monday or being told where to be the next week or the next year. Um, but yeah, it's equally trying to match the normality of that fast paced life in civilian world is something that I'm probably still trying to balance. Yeah, it's not always the easiest transition out. How did you find your transition or do you feel like you're still going through it? Yeah, I feel like I'm still going through it every day, you know, <laughs> 14 years in the military is a long time. Um, and I found the first few years relatively easy, which I don't know if that's the same for everyone else. I don't know. I think just I wanted to leave the military. There was, you know, I didn't feel like I'd been kicked out or left through medically discharged or left because of any bad blood. It was simply that, you know, I felt like I'd done everything that I wanted to do and achieved what I wanted to achieve in the military. and. Um, the job had become quite monotonous and mundane and just samey, like the, the same thing over and over again. I kind of just wanted to explore different different avenues and things outside. And yeah, the first couple of years was was relatively simple because I was excited for this new civilian life. But yeah, I think I think I think the biggest thing that I've learned since being out, and I've, I've been out for probably just over four years now, is having people around you. And it's something that I probably neglected when I first got out because I was just like so focused on what I wanted to do. I probably didn't realize the importance of having people around you. And when you're in the military, you take it for granted that you've got this 
solid set of people, whether it's, you know, male or female that you, you work with constantly. And it's almost a family that you, you don't realize that you've got. And it's that instant support network of, you know, going into work that day after a weekend or whatever, and just being able to talk and decompress what's been going on, whether, I mean, I've not got a family, but lads have got issues at home or, or whatever. It was just that, that sanctuary to do all that. And when you leave, that instantly goes. And I didn't feel it at the start. Um, but yeah, it kind of crept in around the three, three and a half year mark. And I was just like, ah, right work's important and you know what I'm doing on, on the outside is important but I think what's more important than any of that is just who I've got around me and making sure that I've got connections and even whether it's like lads that used to be in that you've got that same level of chat and banter with or you know carving out I don't know team sports or martial arts or anything like that. So do you are you still in contact with a lot of people that you served with? I wasn't at the start but just, just recently, this last six months, yeah, like there's a lot of lads that work in uh, London that I'm in, in comms with and I meet up with them for beers and I don't really speak to anyone that's still in. There's a couple that I do, but they're so busy, you know, they can't find time to come and see you and vice versa. But yeah, there's a few lads that have left since and, you know, even lads that I didn't know that well when, when I was in, but I knew them to chat to kind of thing that now we go out for beers and, and that's great. So was there a point sort of in your career on a tour or just in you know the barracks or something where you just thought enough is enough, yeah, I'm done? A little bit, yeah. I, I ended up going away to Germany to, to be a mountain guide, trained to be a mountain guide. And yeah, I guess, do you know what? Just during that time, it was two years. It was in the mountains, in the Alps. You were traveling all over, climbing, skiing. It's, it's a pretty, I make it sound glamorous, but it was a pretty intense and stressful course. Uh, everything was in German so you, you know you weren't speaking English you were dreaming in German thinking in German I don't know just being I guess I've been in the military since I was 18 19 and just being just seeing something different and being exposed to like climbing and the mountains I don't know yeah I'd say it definitely changed my perspective on on life and um, what I wanted to get out of it and I, I did feel that when I came back from that course that I wasn't as focused on being a soldier as I was when I left. And I, I guess during that pit, you know, that next year period, I started to check out in my own head and just think, you know, do I really want to be here? Is this what I want to do for life? And, you know, no knock to them, but seeing the guys that, you know, are at that, you know, 16 to 20 year point and lads that are chasing commission and um, wearing uniform all day and, I don't know, it was like, do, do I want to be doing that? And then, you know, come out at the age of 42 or 44 or whatever, and then be trying to scrap around and figure out what I do. So, yeah, it was a bit of just a, an educated guess. And I actually signed off on ops, um, which is actually, I don't know, for, for people that have done it, it's quite a daunting thing. It's not an easy decision to make. And I'd probably said to myself, I don't know, six months before that I was going to sign off, and it probably took me six months to actually go and do it. Um, and actually start that process because equally in the SAS um, signing off's not really that common so when someone does it it's like whoa what's going on here um, so that was another process completely. So did you find when you did sign off anyone's sort of attitude towards you changed if it's something that's not really done? I, that's something that I, I've thought about in my own head because you do you expect people to be like 
I don't know why is Jay signing off. Less people that knew me and probably more people that didn't know me. Um, but actually, it's quite the opposite. I think people were really supportive. You know, I had people coming up to me saying, if you, you know, even the RSM, when I had to go and get my signatures, was, you know, he said, if you ever want to come back, he said, just give us a call. Um, so again, that was quite reassuring for me that if I, you know, I went out and failed in the, you know, the wide, big wide civilian world, I knew that I could always get back in and, and slot into my, my job that I used to do. But no, nah, most people were quite supportive. You know, there is that mix of people that probably still stay in because it's easy and it's, it's, you know, you know what you're doing. You've got everything set out. You might have your family that live there, but equally they probably wonder what they could achieve or what they could do on the outside world as well. And it is a bit of that 50-50, right? It's, you always think the grass is greener. There's pros and cons to everything, I think. When you were in Germany, is that kind of when you got the bug for mountaineering and thought, yeah, I'm going to go do Everest? Yeah, well, I kind of got the bug before just because uh, going into mountain troop, you know, I, I, when, I, when I first joined, when I, when I got in the SAS, I had a pretty horrendous back injury. So at the time the troop were just going away and training and I was learning how to climb with this this guy Krish and we're literally just climbing every day doing some of the stuff I'm just a a normal kid from Preston so I'd never climbed skied or anything like that I played rugby growing up and smashed windows because that kind of stuff and it was so yeah like climbing skiing um that was the first time I'd ever ever been exposed to it and I'd say yeah it wasn't like an instant I love this. I want to do it for the rest of my life. It was like, oh, this is good. Like, I, I wonder where I can go with this. And yeah, I guess then Germany like took it up another level. And I was like exposed to these places like Chamonix and Andermatt. And I was just like doing some of the best skiing I'd ever done and be equally being trained to a level where you can perform well in those sports. And yeah, I guess coming back from that, you've, you know, you've, you've trained to a, a very decent standard and, you know, having the opportunity to then go and do the expeditions in Everest and, and the Himalayas was like, yeah, of course I'm going to go and do that. Like, who wouldn't? So were you still in the military when you did your first Everest? Yeah. It's quite a good story, actually, because we had a, an ex-regiment guy called John Wood. He got injured pretty pretty bad. A helicopter landed on his wagon and he was smashed up. He had half a lung and obviously suffered horrendous injuries because of it and made a recovery and... You know, he was very successful in business. He was out of the regiment at this time and he wanted to climb Everest. And yeah, the regiment just put names out and mine got picked because I was a, I was a HBF. I'd done the German course. And it was all about getting John, who didn't have any climbing experience, to yeah, standing on the summit of Everest. So it was like an open book. It was like, right, we did some training in the Lake District, did some tra- training in Chamonix. And then we went out to the Himalayas, did some smaller peaks, some like 5,000, 6,000 meter peaks, which were actually, you know, awesome fun. Just like the only people on the mountains, like pretty special. Um, and then we did uh, Manasley, which is the eighth highest uh, mountain in the world, which we made a load of mistakes on, nearly killed John. And then, um, yeah, and then that led, to, yeah, that led to Everest, going away and, did, and doing the Everest expedition, which again, just after nearly killing John and Manaslu, you know, Everest seemed like a bit of a doddle, if I'm honest. <laughs> was there any nerves, though, after nearly killing him and then going, right, but we're still going to go ahead. We're still going to go do it. Yeah, well, I think there, there were reasons why we nearly killed him. We, I think we messed up on, on the, the time that we give ourselves to climb the mountain, which meant that none of us really acclimatised properly. 
myself included, I was really badly suffering from like the altitude, John more so. And yeah, there, there, there was a lot that went wrong on that expedition. Um, I didn't take enough food up with me. So we ended up getting stuck at camp two, which is, I want to say about 6,500 meters um, in altitude. Uh, we didn't have any tents. The snow was coming down pretty heavy. Um, so we kind of, there was this German military team that we kind of knew some of the guys there. And we've gotten these two man tents with these two massive German guys, and just like one of us in the middle. None of us are acclimatized. So we're all, you're not sleeping, you're not resting, you, your breathing's all over the place. And at the, at the time, I had only enough food so that we could get to the summit and back and not to get stuck at any of the camps. And to say, you know, to say it was uncomfortable was a massive, massive understatement. It was pretty grim to the point I was probably having one meal a day and you just feel hungry and, uh, yeah, it was grim, not sleeping well. And then after the two days had cleared, after the, after the snow stopped falling, sorry, and we carried on with the climb. And, um, yeah, you're just in, like, knee-deep snow, which is taking the life out of you. And then, I don't know if you saw this year, Manisloo had a massive avalanche. Um, so Manisloo is quite prone to it. It's seen as quite a safe mountain, but actually the, the conditions of the slopes and the angles of the slopes can be quite prone to avalanches. And we started seeing loads of little slopes all over the place, little slides all over the place. And yeah, I ended up turning around with John because it was too dangerous to carry on, which is actually probably a godsend because we might have died if we got to the summit. So after all that, you still thought, no, nope, we're going to Everest and off you went. <laughs> so yeah. how long did it take you to to do Everest then? Yeah, Everest is six weeks in total, which seems like a long time. But in terms of any normal person climbing um, altitude, you can only really climb 500 meters of altitude a day. And considering Everest is 8,484, um, that's kind of the reason why you take so long. And you fly into Kathmandu, you might have a few days in Kathmandu, fly out to Lukla. Lukla's around, I think it's around 2,000, 2,500 meters, which anyone can pretty much go into and, and live and be okay and sleep okay and adjust to. And then you start the trek in and the, the trek in takes, I think it's around 12 days. It's like a good solid trek in to go from Lukla at 2,500 meters to Everest Base Camp at 5,000 you know 300 or whatever it is and you, you probably walk in anything from I don't know six to eight hours a day and it's you know if anyone's not, not done it it's like there's some of the best scenery that you'll ever see in your life the menus in the restaurants get a bit tiresome if I'm honest it's like the same thing <laughs> what was the weirdest thing that you had <laughs> the Everest base camp trek's quite westernized because of the amount of tourism it gets but some of the other expeditions um dock leaves which actually weren't too bad. It's almost like boiled dock leaves with like a, a yogurt. So it's almost like that. And it comes in this mush, almost like if you were to like cook spinach in a frying pan. It's like yeah. it's, it's got a similar kind of look and feel to it. And we used to drink this. It's milk straight from the cow. Nice. Yeah. Still warm. And, and yeah. Well, <laughs> not like that, but <laughs> straight from the udder. But they, they get it and they put it in a pan and then boil it kill off any bacteria but um that expedition I actually came back and I remember going climbing with the troop and I just felt weak like I'd get to I'd walk 100 meters and just be out of breath and be sweating I was like I don't feel right 
And I, randomly, I went for a blood test on, on camp. I can't remember what the reason was for. It was just a, a random thing. They, they took a blood test. I remember two days later getting this voicemail on the phone. It was like, hi, Jamie, it's uh, such and such a body from the med centre. Could you please call us as soon as possible? We've got the results back from your blood test. So I was like, ah, sh- like, shit, like, this is urgent. I rang back and apparently my, like my liver, you've got like a score on your liver and I'm, I'm not sure of the exact details. If it was above 60, it means that it's, it's pretty serious. And mine was at something like 450. Yeah, so my liver was like working to get rid of something. So they called me in and I think it's down to this milk that I was drinking. And I don't know, like a bacteria or something's got into me and just messed me up. None of the beers on the way. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely the milk. Not the 10 beers every night back in Kathmandu. Definitely not. (laughs) But but yeah, we did a massive uh, diversion then. But um, yeah, Everest, so the, the 10 days you trek in, yeah the menu is pretty same and then you get to base camp you chill out for a bit rest then you go from base camp uh, and you start your acclimatization so you climb from uh, base camp camp one camp two camp three and then come all the way down you probably do that over the space of a week Um, and then you rest again that's your body should be developing enough red blood cells so you can you know survive at higher at a higher altitude then you rest in, in base camp maybe for about I don't know, anything from a week to 10 days depending and you're really just looking for, for 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 the weather and having like a clear window so you probably need two days um, of good weather where you where you're able to summit and then when you've got that you can start your summit push and that's uh, like a seven day turnaround so you, you climb from base camp to two two to three and then at camp three it that's where like the the, the hard work starts because camp three is at 7,200 meters roughly um, and you'll leave there at five in the morning you'll have a sleep you leave there at five in the morning um, uh, on oxygen and then you'll get to camp four which is the last camp you'll get there about 4 p.m so you've got maybe three or four hours to rest in a tent at camp four and you leave again at 8 p.m and then you get to the summer around 6 to 8 a.m., depending on how fast you are. Some people get there a bit later. Wow. We got there at 6. And then, yeah, you, you, you literally leave the summit, come all the way back down to Camp 2. Um, and some people stop at Camp 3 and sleep there, but at Camp 2, you've got a kitchen, and there's a chef that can cook you not the greatest food, but Tim's Spam, spam and Spaghetti's really, like, taste good after a, <laughs> a good 48-hour stomp. But yeah, you get into camp to around 10 p.m. at night and you're just the, the tiredest I've definitely been in my whole life. To the point you can't even eat the food that's put in front of you. And you get in your sleeping bag that night and it's pretty much guaranteed that the, the porters and the guys that work in the camp have messed up your tent, messed up your sleeping bag. So I, I ended up with some It's really all that. I ended up with like this green, it was almost like an army issue bouncing bomb. <laughs> And the zip was broke on one side. And I just remember thinking, oh, not tonight, please. Like, I just bought a new sleeping bag. It was like, a, I don't know, a minus 20 bag. And I got in this green bag and in my summit suit, which was actually quite wet from the sweat. I just remember getting in and half, you know, about two hours later when all the sweat just starts to get cold. I was just like shivering, couldn't sleep, muscle cramps. 
so yeah it's a pretty that's a pretty grim night some people managed to just rest and, and dry off or whatever but yeah i think they'd lost my bag so they just put me in like one of the sherpa's tents or something i can't remember what it was and then yeah you wake up there and come back come back and you get back to base camp and you literally don't want to stay there another day you, you're trying to call the helicopter in that that day to come and pick you up and take you back down to to Kathmandu or Namchu. It's not it's not like climbing in the Alps where you just go out, you do a route, you feel great, you come back. It's you know six solid weeks, and you know you've pretty much given everything to this mountain to try and get to the summit. You've had all the highs and lows. You've you know you've looked at the weather system. You literally just you know eyes on stalks for like the whole week, looking at the weather systems, talking to the other camps. Some people might try and you're like, oh, should we try? Should we try? And then they try and fail and come back down. And you're like, oh, we did the right thing. And it's, it's this like stressful situation, especially when you're in charge of the expedition and you're trying to get John up to the summer or you're trying to get a team up to the summer. There's a lot that, that's, that's counting on you for that success. So it's like a lot of like, oh, and then the food becomes a bit grinding. Uh, I think everyone that's done an expedition will tell you that. Just you get to the end of the six weeks, you know, your body's like fatigued, you've lost loads of weight. And yeah, it's like the thought of just getting into a hotel in Kathmandu, going out for a pizza and a beer, having a hot shower, changing clothes and putting some clothes on that you've not just worn for six weeks. Like all of that stuff just seems so appealing and just brings so much happiness that you just can't wait to get off the mountain. But then you were quite lucky that first time you were up there on your own. Is that right? Yeah, so the first time actually was was pretty relatively simple expedition. Um, we, we got to Camp 4 and this the South Col is like a big V-shaped valley. And there's this wind ripping up through the South Col and it completely trashed our tent. So we're, we're trying our hardest to get this, this second tent up so we could all get in and shelter from this wind. And um, you're in the tent, the whole thing's like, you know, like shaking constantly. There's like a lot of commotion going on, you know, all the teams are talking and I remember this big Indian military expedition, they all turned around and, and went back to Camp 3. A lot of um, people that were at Camp 4 were actually there from the night before because they'd been unable to summit and come back down and rest it. It was obviously my first time at, at Camp 4 or, or being on Everest and it's, it's weird. I just remember sat in the tent and I kept putting my hand out the window to feel the wind. and I don't know, it didn't really die off, but it, I don't know, it felt warmer. I, I can't explain it. I don't even know what my logical thinking was, but it just felt warmer to touch, but not even much. And um, we're all just kind of sat in this tent and it was probably about eight, nine o'clock at night now. And there's a small little group of climbers just heading up to summit. And you can just see the head torches in the night. Only small though. And um you're all there in your summit suits and you've had a bit of food and it's warm. And I just remember Mingma, our Sherpa, turning around to us and going like, what do you want to do? And um, I said, we go and we just try it. And if it's, you know, the wind and the weather's too bad, then we can turn around and come back. But I, I just think we should try it now we're here. And we set off and that, you know, that's pretty grim because you, you go outside and the you've got to put your crampons on and you can't put your crampons on with these big mitts. So you've got to take them off and your fingers are stinging and trying to wedge these crampons on with numb hands. And then he set off and yeah, lucky for us, it was, you know, blue sky. And well, as soon as the, the sun came up, we we're quite late up to be fair. And 
it's literally a warm day and we were almost like sheltered from the wind going up or the wind died off. Ningma stayed with John and my Sherpa turned around because he just didn't feel too well. So I just ended up climbing on my own and just felt really strong, like I was climbing the Alps or something. Um, and reached the summit and there was two Korean climbers on the summit that were getting a picture with their flag. I just remember thinking, I need to get a picture. So I literally ran up, stop, breathe, ran up, stop, breathe. Um, and just said, guys, you want to take a picture? They're like, yeah. And I pulled my squadron flag, the SAS flag out at the time. And they took a picture and yeah, it came out all blurry. So, oh, no. <laughs> uh, so these guys went off and I was just, yeah, on my own on the summit. Like literally no one. Like John was probably, a, you know, 45 minutes behind me. There's literally just Amazing. no one. It's surreal. And I just remember thinking in my head, like, how do I, how do I make the most of this? moment like how do I I don't know it was just a, a thing that because I was like I'm the only person on Everest right now on the summit I was like how do I even I don't know comprehend it and I just thought well just look around and just <laughs> take it in and then I was still talking in my head going are you taking it in <laughs> I, I remember I got my phone out I was like oh, I've got a bit of battery so I started like doing a little video and that just cut out because of the cold but yeah it was yeah it's surreal and then I just climbed down and waited for John just on the Hillary step bit at the bottom. And then John came up and we'd summited again, got proper pictures and, and um, non blurry ones. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Have yeah. you ever forgiven those Koreans for that? <laughs> oh, it's quite, it's a, it's a story now, isn't it? It's like the only <laughs> picture that I've got. And actually I'm pretty sure that it's up somewhere in, 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 uh, in Hereford, the picture of like all, there was a few of us, you know, there was some guys that climbed with the Gurkha team and there was myself, John, um, another guy, Krish, and some of the guys that uh, I won't say any of the other names, but um, they also got to the summit as well, um, which was so it's, you know for that year for the regiment was a, a good success on Everest. Yeah, and actually a really nice experience when you compare what the Hillary step looked like when Nims was doing his challenge and there was the big old queue all the way down. How lucky for John that his <laughs> one and only was the way that it was. I know, right? And I think you know that's. Fortunately and unfortunately, that's the way that, you know, expeditions in the Himalayas are probably going to go now. And it's weird, the, the picture that Nims took, we actually summited the second day. So it, was, it wasn't as bad as what, you know, the, the image that Nims took. It wasn't as bad as that, but it was pretty similar. Um, and it's kind of comparing the two Everest summits, you know, that, that second one was a lot, a lot more stressful, um, mainly because the, the, the team was a bit bigger, but... You know, you, you got to the summit and there was like teams all over the place getting pictures and the summit was maybe, I don't know, 20 metres, 30 metres, probably a bit more in front of us, like where all the, the flags are. I just want to say, like, lads, let's just stop here because as soon as everyone turns around and starts moving off that mountain, we're going to get stuck because it all it goes into a choke point on the Hillary step and you can only get one person down at a time and you can't even overtake. So it's like if we get stuck there, it's just going to be painful. So I said, let's just let's stop here. Everyone get pictures, do what you want, but just be ready as soon as any of those big groups move. Let's just get off the mountain and go. Um, but it was a bit just like like being in the park on a Friday, on a Saturday day or something. Is that for people? After the first one, why would you go back again? <laughs> it's that adventure, I think. It's just going back to that adventure and uh, being given the opportunity to do it. And, you know, people pay you know, anything from thirty to fifty thousand dollars to go and do it. And I was 
you know, doing it for free or having my costs covered, being given that opportunity again, I, I jump at it in a heartbeat. You know, it's 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 testing, it's adventurous, it's I don't know, you problem solving, it's all those things that you just I don't know, you you want to be doing and. Yeah, even though that second experience wasn't as good, it was still something that I remember. Even coming off the mountain, I was saying to myself, I'll never come back. And But if you asked me now if I wanted to go next year, I'd jump at the chance. <laughs> Talking of opportunities coming around, how did SAS Who Dares wins come in? Um, yeah, so that was probably about a year after I'd left the army. And um, yeah, I was working for it's an ex, you know, a couple of ex-SBS lads set up a brand called Through Dark, an outdoor clothing brand. So I was working with those guys, you know, we were all quite tight with Foxy and uh, Foxy had mentioned that the show might be interested in using Through Dark's clothing, you know, for all the DS and the, the recruits. So we were in comms with them about that and they were looking for this new plot of a mole to go in and they wanted the mole to be an ex-UK Special Forces guy so that then, you know, when he came out, he could transition to being a DS and, uh, and fit in. And yeah, we, you know, there was a load of people that ex-special forces lads that applied and yeah I just found myself being shortlisted for it did um, you like being the mole didn't like being the mole to be honest because <laughs> uh, it was oh, it was all those things that you probably did when you first joined the military that as a 36 year old man or 35 year old man I was just like oh god it was like cold wet sleep deprived food deprived being told to do lean like fall backwards into water and just do, I don't know, do stuff that I'm just like, Oh God, what? do you know what I mean? It was like, yeah. none of it was enjoyable. And I remember like, I think it was like day five. I'd like checked out in my head. I was just like, this is, this is painful. It, it kind of probably fed into the storyline even better. Cause I wasn't speaking to anyone. I was just moody. I was just like, this is, we're getting woke up in the middle of the night and beasted and shouted out. And I was just like, this is stupid. Cause like, this isn't, I, I, I don't know. I don't feel like I had anything to prove either. So it's just like, I'm cold again. Uh, yeah, I'm wet again. But I mean, hats off to any of the recruits that do it because like, Jesus, if I, you know, I'm saying that it's difficult and hard. It's, it is. It'd be the hardest thing that anyone ever does in their life. And then day six came. I was just like, yes, this is the day. This is the day. I remember doing the whole outing scene where I'd forgot my helmet and I, I walked out. I walked the wrong way, actually. I was supposed to walk straight into the... Um, the doctor's office where he gives you the interview but i ended up walking back into the the, the the accommodation block yeah i remember just getting picked up took to this hotel room they were like what food do you want i was like steak <laughs> i'll have a dessert i'll have a, a latte or whatever and uh just jumped in the shower and i was in the shower for like 40 minutes just like you know you keep creeping up creeping it up hotter and hotter and hotter my skin was all red i was just like oh this is the best time ever so despite having done all the training and obviously still being very fit you were still finding that hard do you know what the hardest thing is about about that show and being a recruit on it the physical stuff's hard right it's like yeah it's 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 not easy but you accept that physical stuff's going to be hard you accept that you might be scared of i don't know jump falling in backwards in water you might be scared of heights personally all that stuff's not that difficult but the tasks themselves aren't difficult you've just got to you know you've just got to be comfortable with doing them um but at the time you know you're all stood around chatting you're not getting beasted you, the ds might come over and start taking the piss it's actually not that bad um it's it's the, the, the consistency of 
you know, you're back to sleeping in a 20 man room. Uh, you've no showers, you know, you're taking a shit next to everyone else. The food is absolutely minimal um, and pretty grim. You know, you'd have cold porridge in the morning and maybe like half a boiled egg um, and you just get a dollop of that. So, you know, you're burning all these calories to stay warm and, you know, do these tasks, whether it's fitness or whatever, um, but you're not getting enough calories to actually be able to do that. Um, and then sleep, right? You're not getting sleep. You're getting woke up in, woken up in the middle of the night. It's Scotland, right? So it's it's never not raining. So it's like it's like the consistency of that every day is just like it grind it grinds you down and wears you down. And you know that's what obviously the show producers and the BS on there are trying to achieve. They're trying to wear you down to a point that you quit. So yeah, that's that's why it's so difficult. And did nobody notice your power attack at any point that might have given them a clue? Yeah, I got it it covered. Um, No, because that would have been all right. (laughs) All right. um, It was weird, I think, because there was a mole on the last, I think, one or two episodes, one or two seasons. Everyone's kind of expecting it. Um, So everyone's almost paranoid about everyone else, which kind of makes you fit in a little bit. And it is, it's, you know, I'm I'm not like, you know, being in special forces, but I'm not natural at, having to lie to people or do a cover story for that amount of time it is quite difficult um it's almost like the you know the thing that i found was just trying to avoid conversation about anything that i had to lie about so if i could steer conversation into like what they're doing who they are do you know what i mean or or if they're asking me about stuff you try and steer it away from your work because if you're talking to me and i'm talking about my family and you know who's in my family and what they do or and then you ask me a question of, uh, you know, what do you do for a living or something? I'll answer them, you know, my body language and the way I speak and everything will be very different. And if it's quite easy to pick up on that. I mean, I, I find lying and that kind of stuff quite difficult anyway. So I could have got to the end and people wouldn't have known any different. But I think when I came out, people were like, mm, uh, that, that makes, makes a lot sense, of sense. Yeah. You've done your mountains. You've done your military career. You've done a TV show. The natural step, obviously, would be into motorsport next. <laughs> on earth did that come around again right just just crazy opportunity so praga you know this company from the czech republic they've got deep history in engineering and you know their their history goes back to like the early 1900s where they were building uh, building cars vehicles motorbikes um obviously the czech republic was a communist state so skoda were building cars praga were building military i think military trucks trucks that kind of stuff so it was almost like you know no one knows who they are but they you know their heritage goes back just as far as any other vehicle brand um and then praga you know massive in karting you know you look at anyone on the formula one grid now they've come through karting they've raced in a praga part at some stage and then they've got the r1 race car which is a, a track car 365 brake horsepower no traction no abs you know it's an aero car so the faster you drive it the more grip it's got single seater so yeah it was like one of those opportunities where the now md of praga was a a friend of of my managers and you know it was during lockdown we met in a park we we brought a couple of cans of beer because it was like the first time you could start meeting people for business meetings we sat in this park and mark harrison's chatting through about this you know car brand that i'd never heard of that probably no one else has up until now and their aspirations and that they want to run this academy for people that haven't raced to come in and race 
racing this Prague Rail One race car, and um, they want to start a one mate race series, so where it's just Prague cars that are racing. And yeah, with with a long term goal of of um, of uh, producing a, a street car, a hypercar, and yeah, it was one of those where you just sat there going, oh, you know, I remember growing up around motorsport, and my dad had a Reliance Scimitar, and every weekend the bonnet would be open and my head would be underneath it, just watching him doing spanners up and bolts up. I had no idea what he was doing, but then we'd go to touring cars, we'd go um, go to like the NEC to the Classic Car Show, and we'd watch F1 and we'd watch different motorsport on, on TV and that. And so, yeah, like I've always been into it. Just sat there in that park, just having the opportunity, and just someone going, "Yeah, do you fancy racing?" I was like, "Yeah, yeah, sounds good." And then, yeah, you know, a year later, I was I was trying to get my race license. I uh, got my race license, did a couple of uh, Clio Cup races, a couple of Janetta races, got the ticks in the box, and then I was straight into the Praga at Snetterton in the wet. Your teammate, of course, is a good friend of the charity, the one and only Stig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How's it been racing with him? Is it been like good to learn and has he taught you a lot or has he kind of just gone the other way of, no, you're on your own? Nah, Ben's been phenomenal. You're kind of at awe with him because he's so, he's such a nice guy, but equally so talented in the car and so experienced. Just, just to see what he can do in the car is, has been phenomenal. And, you know, he's obviously brought me on loads as a, as a driver and a racer. But just seeing him drive a hypercar was probably better than any race that I've raced with him. You're just like in awe of the skill and yeah, you're just like, yeah, I take my heart off to you, mate. All that piss taking, all the times I've called you dad, all the times I've <laughs> mocked you for being 10 years older than me. Um, <laughs> I am now in awe. Um, and yeah, it was quite a sad moment actually, because I don't know if I'll come back next year to race for Praga. So it was like one of those end of an era things where you, where you close the book on a chapter and are just like, that was a pretty special way to finish it. Ben was with us at Silverstone in March this year, driving the Koenigsegg. And he just makes it look so easy. Like you say, it's just like it's nothing to him. It's, it's, it's mad, isn't it? It's mad. Yeah. I, it, again, right, it's like Ben's one of the best in his class at, at you know driving supercars or racing cars. And you forget that because... You go to the pub with him, you sat there, you're chatting with him, whatever. And I don't know, even when we're racing, we're, we're so like hyper-focused on like my performance and the car setup and the, the track conditions and all these little details that you forget you're actually with him and you just mm. feel like you're just with your teammate. And then you see him jump into that, that supercar and you're just like, yeah, that's, that's what he's made of. You know, it's seeing, the, seeing one of the best in the world drive one of the best cars in the world. It's phenomenal. Well, there's always the opportunity next year. You can come and join us at a track day and we'll get him down and he can share the track again. Yeah, definitely. I'd love to, 100%. So do you think the the sort of mental resilience you built up in the military helped you with motorsport? Yeah, definitely, 100%. The R1 itself, although, it's, although you can be someone who's never raced and jump into it like I did, I think having a mindset of almost compartmentalising the stress and pressure of racing and your ability in the car and the actual car itself and being nervous around that because it's an absolute weapon, you know, to just be able to compartmentalize that and almost just feel a bit more, I don't know, feel comfortable in the car, even though you know like what's expected or what you've got to do. And just, yeah, I guess that 
that kind of mindset I've probably learned in the special forces is that, you know, just to, to be able to stay calm, even then, even, you know, even if it's not going your way to just not be overwhelmed by everything that's going on and to just go out and try your best. And I, I was, you know, I was the slowest driver on the grid last season for sure. And this, this last season has been different because, you know, you ask any of the drivers there, so even most of the amateur drivers are pretty much professional drivers who've been racing all their life. But, you know, racing with Ben's been brilliant because he's been able to carry that, you know, my amateur uh, ability and, you know, we've come out with some decent results. And I think we've had three podium finishes this, this year. We've had a third place. We had a second place on this last weekend at Donington and, and a third place. And yeah, just just seeing myself come on as a as a driver, you know, even that last race on Saturday at Donington, I was putting in lap times that were we're all in the same ballpark. You would you'd have no idea who the who the amateur or who the slowest driver on the grid was. We're all the same, and I don't know if you saw the race, but uh, I had to rewatch it again. It was like one of the best <laughs> best races I've ever had. Just catching Jimmy, and then unfortunately I got held back by one of the other cars. It put me back to four seconds, but you know. I think on that race, if you'd have given me two more laps, right, and I got caught back, I'd have easily got past Jimmy and won the race. You know, the last two years racing for Prague has just been insane, and I'll miss it. Me and Ben are trying to rattle our heads at the minute and see how we can do it next season, but I'll miss the uh, I'll miss jumping in the car and the feeling that you get hitting every corner, and even that the feeling in that car is yeah, I will miss it. And I mean, that's one of the things why we do what we do because motorsport actually has a lot of similarities to the military in that you know you're doing something that's quite adrenaline based it's still quite dangerous but your team becomes your family and becomes around you and your support it shows now where we have days and we do driver development and they race and race remembrance it's that amazing kind of community that you build and and get that feeling back yeah definitely that's another thing on this it's like just being around paddock on a saturday and friday saturday sunday and just Again, it's, it's like being in the military, right? It's the same banter, it's the same piss-taking. And then you go out and you do something that's hard, you know, it's challenging, it's rewarding, or sometimes not rewarding, depending on how you judge your performance. But if you can park that and know that you're just going out there to have fun, then, you know, it can be rewarding or it is rewarding. It is. It's like being in the military. It's like being in a team. So what's next? Pilot's license, throw yourself out <laughs> some F35. <laughs> Oh God, imagine. And um, I don't know, <laughs> trying to do that stuff. Yeah, I, I think I'm at this point now where I'm kind of scratching my head of like what I want to do because the TV stuff was great. Um, it led on to a lot of great stuff, you know, like working with, with brands, you know, I work with Innovate trainers. Um, we, we just signed with like Boss, Boss Clothing. And then there's been like some small TV stuff, like I filmed the show in Korea, which was pretty crazy. And then doing some work with Ducati motorbikes, which is really good. So I'm doing a lot of track work with them. We just did a trip up to Scotland. I kind of want to build something around like all these, all these kind of hobbies or activities that I do, like the bikes, like the track stuff, like um, the skiing, the mountaineering. I kind of want to build something around that. You know, I'm just a kid from Preston that grew up not around all this stuff, but my life's led me into all this stuff. And I've found passions in all of them and found happiness or fulfillment in all of these activities. And I, you know, I'm sat. There's another ex-special forces lad that, that got out of the SAS just recently, and, and we're sat down and just trying to think, think of like how we can bring this to to people like what I would have been, um, in in an affordable way that you're not spending. You don't need to be, you know, middle class to go and climb a mountain. 
so we're trying to rack our brains now and and think of a way that we can do that um so that we spend more time on the mountain and on bikes and on racetracks as well right so quick quick fire round yeah and then we end on a, a piece of advice that you'd like to give so right summer or winter summer best uk track between donnington and alton first or second summit of everest first mole or ds ds sas or power edge SAS. Motorbike or sports car? Oh, I get asked this quite a lot. Oh. <laughs> Coming second and third at the weekend, sports car. Foxy or Ant? Oh, they're both legends. <laughs> they're both legends. Well done. I say Foxy, I I've known him for longer. And the one piece of advice that you'd give people to take through their life, what's or what's the one that you've held on to? Do you know what? I'm copying this one, unfortunately, but it's one that's been really helpful with me. And I actually heard Bear Grylls of all people say it, and it's don't give up. I think it's as cheesy as it sounds. I just think in, in everything that we do, whether it's work, family, life, you know, even like mental health struggles that we might have, I think it just really resonates with everything. It's just don't give up and, yeah, don't give up on yourself and your happiness, I guess. Nice. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Brilliant. Thank you, Tilly. Thank you for listening to the Mission Motorsports Mini Sessions podcast. Don't forget you can get your tickets online by heading to www.missionmotorsport.org or click the link in the bio to get your tickets. If you'd just like to make a donation to the charity, we are always happy to receive. Just text 10MM to 70085. And don't forget, like the podcast.